few years ago, uh, the editors of American Book Review uh, voted on what they thought were the, foam, uh, the most famous first lines of novels. And you might recognize some of these first lines. Call me Ishmael from Moby Dick. Uh, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife from Pride and Prejudice. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You got to remember that from high school, Tale of Two Cities. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, <laughs> from Lolita. <laughs> yeah, that's not high school reading. Don't read that in high school. <laughs> uh, I'm actually a sucker for the first line of books. Uh, first lines do so much. They, they set the tone. They introduce the author. They introduce the style. They make you think. They, they make you want to keep reading about the characters that you're going to meet. Uh, for example, C.S. Lewis starts his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, like this. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> a good book starts with a good first line. The Bible is a good book. It starts with a good first line. You might know the line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Might be one of the most famous lines in all of literature. It has been borrowed and copied and parodied. Uh, when the British writer Douglas Adams wrote his book, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, which I read in high school, uh, he borrowed from the first line of the Bible. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. <laughs> Doesn't that make you want to keep reading? This is the point and purpose of first lines. They make you want to keep reading. Now, we will keep reading, but this morning, we're going to stick with the first line of the Bible for a bit. Last week, we started a new series here at Rooftop. It's called Chapter One, A Slow Walk Through the First chapter of Genesis. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It tells the story of the beginning of the world, the formation of Israel, the people of God. Chapter one isn't just the beginning to the book of Genesis, it's the beginning to the entire Bible. Now, like we talked about last week, introductions are important. In introductions, we meet characters, we are exposed to conflict, we experience setting in which a story takes place. And we're studying Genesis chapter 1 because I don't think a lot of Christians have actually spent enough time in the first chapter of the Bible, chewing on it, meditating on it, thinking about it. We've argued about the first chapter of the Bible. We've put the first chapter of the Bible up on felt boards for children. But behind the arguments and behind the felt board presentations is a beautiful but difficult and important introduction to the most important book ever written. And that's what we talked about last week. In fact, if you're really invested in this series, I actually invite you to go back and watch or listen to the intro. Uh, in addition to talking about why we're doing this series, we also talked about how we're going to study Genesis 1. We're going to study Genesis 1 slowly. We're going to study it humbly. We're going to study it reverently, and we're going to study it obediently. 
And as evidence of the slowness of the study, though, we're going to look at one verse this morning, Genesis 1.1. Don't worry, we will pick it up next week and look at a few verses at a time. Otherwise, this would take a very long time. But this first verse, this most famous first line, gives us plenty to think about if we're willing to just slow down and chew on it for a while. So that's what we're going to do. I already told you the line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as modern people who like to get onto the next thing, we have a hard time just pausing there. But every single one of those phrases could be a sermon series. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Each of those phrases is pregnant with theology and meaning and imagery an application. And if you meditate on those phrases long and deeply enough, they actually have the potential to change how you think, to change how you view the world, and to change how you live your life. And it's also the perfect three-point sermon. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's start our slow walk through the first line of the first chapter of the first book of the most important work ever written. First, in the beginning. Now this line seems pretty straightforward. In the beginning. Makes sense. Let's keep reading. <laughs> but is it that straightforward? I mean, in the beginning of what? At the beginning of the week? At the beginning of the story? At the beginning of time? Besides which, what's a beginning? We're actually going to talk more about this next week because we're going to find out that the beginning of the universe, at least as it's described in Genesis, looks a lot different in the Bible than it does in our minds. The thing I want to slow down and appreciate this morning, though, is how important this notion of a beginning is to the author. This is a simple idea with profound implications that the universe had a beginning. There was a time when it started. It didn't exist, and then it did. For a long time, scientists and philosophers and cosmologists weren't so sure about this simple fact. They thought that the universe had maybe just always existed. That's what the ancient Greeks thought. Even many modern cosmologists held to something known as the steady state model of the universe. The steady state model of the universe is a theory that the universe has just always existed going back to infinity and beyond. <laughs> Now, with the discovery of the evidence of the Big Bang, scientists are much more confident that the universe actually had a starting point, which, yeah, we know. We could have told you that. In fact, this is one of those moments when the Bible describes something that science and philosophy ultimately confirms that the universe had a beginning. Now, I don't think this phrase in Genesis 1-1 is necessarily a scientific or philosophical statement, though. I don't think the author is saying, I reject the steady-state model of the universe. No, I think there's something else going on here. I think there's some drama here. I think we're supposed to, to, to feel something when we hear this phrase, in the beginning. I mean, what do 
beginnings represent? A beginning represents possibility. A beginning represents opportunity. A beginning represents a condition in which things have yet to be corrupted by time. I got to perform my son's wedding last month. It was a joyous day. It was a fantastic day. Not only was it a perfect day, but it was the beginning of what we hope in our hearts will be a long and fruitful relationship. And I hope that Max and my new daughter-in-law, Mary, think back to the day as a day, a reminder of what God started and how perfect it once was. Because you know this, stories never proceed as perfectly as they start, right? Things get tough. Things get difficult. We see this in marriage. We see this in Genesis. Chapter 1 starts out so perfect. And even chapter 2 describes just an ideal, picturesque little garden. But then chapter 3, ugh. And chapter 4, ooh, no. Chapter 5, yikes. And then chapter 6, whoa. But for this shiny little moment, at the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, everything was perfect. Genesis goes on to describe a time and a place where creation was well-ordered and animals and humans coexisted in peace and God walked the surface of the earth. Even Jesus looked back to the beginning of the universe as a time when things just worked. Uh, one time, for example, Jesus was talking to some of his followers about, of all things, marriage. And he was talking about how, you know, marriage has kind of been corrupted by time and by people. And what does he say? He says... It was not this way in the beginning. You can kind of hear him shaking his head. It wasn't this way in the beginning. This is what beginnings represent. What was. I mean, do you remember what was? You know, your childhood. Your wedding day. Christians talk wistfully about the book of Acts at the beginning of the church. When everybody was together, praising God, watching miracles in their midst. I mean, even here at Rooftop, we talk longingly about the early days when we met in the community center up in Richmond Heights. You know, those early days when, you know, nobody was coming and we didn't have any money and we didn't know what we were doing. It was all so perfect back then. <laughs> Beginnings represent what once was and what still can be. And this is why beginnings are important to God, because we get a picture of what God intended and what God is still committed to. No matter how far we get from our wedding day, from the beginning, God is still determined to bring us back there. That's why the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, describes the final condition of the universe using the imagery of Genesis with trees and man and beast living at peace with each other and in fellowship with God. And this is why Jesus says that you know how you get there? You must be born again. Baptism is our new beginning 
When we take hold of God's promise to someday recreate our lives, what originally was at the beginning and what can still be. Uh, I, I grew up going to church, and uh, in the church I grew up, there was this song that we sang. Maybe if you grew up in church, you, you remember it too. It's called the Gloria Patri. Maybe you remember it. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Anybody else grow up singing that? I had no idea what it meant when I sang it. Until this week. <laughs> this week. Sitting there working on my sermon. As it was in the beginning. Where have I sung that? Before my whole life. But this is what I was singing. As it was in the beginning. Is now. And ever shall be. What was once the case. Can still be. If. You're born again if you take hold of the new beginning offered to you and I in Jesus Christ. In the beginning, next. In the beginning, God created. So within a couple words of the opening line of this book, we are introduced to a figure known as God. Now, God turns out to be a pretty important guy in this book. Uh, so far, he's the only one in this book. And we learn from this verse that God is what theologians call pre-existent. In other words, if the creation of the heavens and the earth is the beginning of reality as we know it, God existed beforehand or outside of the beginning. God transcends whatever reality was begun. Get your brains around that. Good luck. But who is this God? This God who pre-exists. Interestingly, uh, the Hebrew name used for God here, it's a fairly generic term for divine beings. It's the title Elohim. Uh, lots of people in this part of the world actually use this title, not just Jews. Uh, lots of people use this title, El or Elohim, to refer to lots of different gods. So it's not just a Hebrew name. It's basically a title that means the deity. Fairly generic. So from the title itself, we don't learn that much about who this God is. What's interesting about this deity, though, isn't necessarily his name, but what he does. So the God described to us here in Genesis 1 is introduced to us primarily by his actions. And what does he do? He creates. Uh, we find out very soon how he creates. He creates by the power of his word, which is, whoa, how? But we meet him here as a creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this word create is actually one of the most important words in the chapter. The Hebrew word is bara. And the author uses it many more times when he writes about God creating the great creatures of the sea, creating man, creating them male and female. The word bara appears in several other places too, like in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. And in Isaiah 43, uh, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. Now the word bara, it means to create 
but that can mean a variety of things. It can mean to call something into existence, but it, also, it can also mean to form and to shape, just like God forms and shapes man out of the mud of the earth, like a, like a potter, like an artist. And this is what we're supposed to think about when we hear this word create. God, Elohim, the deity, he's an artist. He's a sculptor. He's a potter. We meet him as an artist. To use the modern term, God is a creative. He likes making stuff. I've always loved this about God. Because I too like making stuff. Uh, when I was a little boy, I actually wanted to be an artist. Before I wanted to be an actor or a baseball player, certainly before I wanted to be a pastor, I wanted to be an artist. My parents will tell you I was always drawing and coloring and creating and ordering how to be a cartoonist magazines from the back of the book. And I was building stuff on my dad's workbench and I was designing t-shirts for youth group and choir and school trips. Now, of course, I did not become the world famous painter I aspired to be, but I never stopped looking at the world like an artist, seeing details, noting colors, wondering what I could bring forth in it. In fact, I keep a picture on the wall of my office from preschool. It's a picture of a crazy orange and blue monster. I remember creating it in preschool. Like when I was four years old. I call it crazy orange and blue monster. <laughs> and I keep it. I keep it on my wall because I actually think it's pretty good for a four-year-old. The, the, the colors are complementary. There's good use of space. There's lots of different designs and patterns. And people walk into my office and like, oh, do one of your kids do that? I'm like, no, no, that was me. <laughs> Not like 40-year-old me. <laughs> that was like four-year-old me. But I put it up on my wall because I want it to remind me of, of who I feel like I am, or at least who I want to think of myself as, at my core, I'm an artist. Sermons, Sunday services, web pages, t-shirts, patio gazebos, I like creating, I like forming, I like building. Do you know why? Because I was created in the image of God, who is also a creator, who is also an artist. What does it mean to be an artist? You know what it means to be an artist. You artists do at least. To be an artist means to see what's possible and to exercise the freedom and initiative and power to bring it forth. And God is really good at it too. He's really creative. In fact, we will see in Genesis 1 how much of a brilliant creative visionary God is, separating light from darkness and land from sea and creatures according to their kind and forming a human being out of the mud. It's a lot better than my preschool masterpiece, Crazy Orange and Blue Monster. God is an artist and a good one. This is important because we need creative people in our lives. One of the reasons I love working at Rooftop, one of the reasons I think Rooftop is a special church is because we've got some very creative people around here. Heather and Jason, I don't know if you're Heather and Jason, they're like two of the most creative people I know. They're always just coming up with new things to do, things to try, solutions. We need creative people in our lives. Because we got some big messes going on inside of us, right? God is the most creative being in existence. He comes up with ways out of those situations. He's pretty creative. 
make suggestions we wouldn't think about. The other reason it's important that God is an artist is because he's just not done creating. Just because God rested on the seventh day doesn't mean the work is over. Creation is a long-term art project, and it's a long-term art project with us at the center. You see, we aren't just part of his creation. We are the pinnacle of his creation. We are the last thing God creates on the first week. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And the thing about masterpieces is that they take a long time, right? Do you know that it took Leonardo da Vinci 20 years to paint the Mona Lisa? He didn't whip that thing out on a weekend. It took him 20 years. He died before it was even completed. Great artists take their time, especially on masterpieces. <laughs> this reassures me a lot. We are infinitely more complex and beautiful and mysterious than the Mona Lisa. I mean, we're three-dimensional, we have souls, we're people, we have relationships. We just take time, and we need to give ourselves some time. God's not going to knock us out over the weekend. I hate when I quote bumper stickers. I hate it, but every now and then I have to quote a bumper sticker. You've seen it. Be patient with me. God's not finished with me yet. I'm so sorry I had to quote a bumper sticker, but yes, 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 and amen. But put this bumper sticker like on your bathroom mirror. I don't, I don't know if the world needs to know that about you as much as you need to know that about you. Put it on your, bumper, put it on your bathroom mirror. Purging you of sin is going to take time. You're not a rush job. Rebuilding your body in glory is going to take time. We are masterpieces but we're complex ones. Give the most creative being in the universe some time. In the beginning, God created. Finally, uh, what did he create? What did he create? Heavens. Heavens and the earth. Now, there's actually some discussion uh, among commentators about this phrase and what it refers to. So earth clearly refers to earth, the land, but what does heavens refer to? Is it the sky with the birds or is it the heavenly abode with the angels? Well, this is one detail that we don't need to overthink. Everything else we will, <laughs> but this is one detail we don't need to. Uh, th this is a phrase that the Bible uses a lot to refer to everything. It's a rhetorical figure of speech used to indicate all things by listing extremes. It's like from the east to the west, from prince to pauper. Or it's like the author of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 9, all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad. Basically, everybody. Same thing with the heavens and the earth. It means everything. God created everything. As the psalmist writes, the heavens are yours, yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. There's nothing that exists that was not created by God. There was not another deity in another realm that had a parallel project going on. There was not a sub-God that came along and created something within God's great, glorious universe. God created everything from the heavens to the earth. Now, this is actually a very important idea for lots of reasons. First, when we say that God created everything, we must understand that by definition, by definition, that includes 
us. By definition, God created the heavens and the earth, and he also created us. Now, technically, we were created in a moment of passion when our mother and father did what mothers and fathers do and something we don't like to think about our particular mothers and fathers doing. God wasn't immediately involved in that act of creation, but it did create the potential for life to form. He created the plane of existence upon which new life is brought forth and is the one responsible for our very existence. Guess what? We belong to him. I will always be my mother's child. I will always be my father's son. We will always be our creator's creatures. As the prophet wrote, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You are mine. To believe that God created all things means to believe that God created us and for a purpose and that he knows us and that we ultimately belong to him. I mean, the the Mona Lisa will always be Da Vinci's. Uh, Windows will always belong to Bill Gates. Mickey Mouse will always be Walt Disney's. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. It means to understand that what Paul says in Corinthians is true. You are not your own. You think you belong to yourself? You don't. We don't have nearly as much autonomy and authority over our lives as we think we do. It's like the prophet Isaiah wrote, woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Does the, I love this image. Does the pot say to the potter, what are you doing? <laughs> What's going on? What are you doing? Stop. To believe that God created everything means to believe that God created us and that we belong to him. And that changes everything, right? When you understand whose you are. But also to believe that God created everything means something else too. And I'll leave you with this. To believe that God created everything means that he's a pretty impressive guy. I mean, he can do that. He can create everything, the heavens and the earth. And like everything in between, I remember walking into a, a friend of mine, a friend of mine's house that he was building. He was building a new house, and in order to save money, he didn't use any subcontractors. He just did it all himself, like I, the walls, the, the electric, the, the plumbing, the roof, the windows. He poured the foundation. He did it all himself. I was walking around I'm like, who did that? It's like I, I did that. Who did that? I, I did that too. Uh, well, who did that over there? Like I did. Did, did you hire anybody? I'm like, no, I, I did it all myself. I'm like. Wow, I could maybe do the framing. Same thing with the universe. God built everything. The heavens, the earth, the foundation, the walls, the roof, the windows, the plumbing, the electric. God designed the physics of it, the chemistry behind it, the beauty of it. God made all of it. And here's why this is important. It's important because it makes you wonder, what else can he do? If God can make the heavens and the earth, what else can he do? And you know the answer to that question, right? What else can you do? Everything. Thank you, Aiden. Yeah, these silly adults. <laughs> Everything. As the prophet Jeremiah writes, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Anybody who called the universe into existence by his word can do anything he wants, right? Like anything? What does that include? Well, what does it not include? 
Doesn't include helping you overcome your depression and anxiety and addictions. Yes. Doesn't include healing you of your sickness. Yes. Doesn't include blessing you with a child. Yes. Doesn't include rescuing your marriage from the dumps. Yes. It does mean everything. I have some other examples, though, that I'd like to... <laughs> Does it include giving your life meaning and purpose? Does it include uh, giving you strength to love your enemies and raise your kids, which is sometimes the, kind of the same thing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Does it include turning your mourning to dancing and your weeping to joy? Does it include building more churches to preach the gospel in this city? Doesn't include rescuing children from poverty and giving them homes to live in. Doesn't include raising you from the dead in the likeness of God's son, Jesus Christ. Yes, it does. If God can create everything, God can do anything. It doesn't mean he will, but it means he can. And sometimes all he's waiting is to be asked. <laughs> 